Okay. Hello. So two days ago, I was sitting in a cafe. Uh, it was uh, very loud and completely uh, overpriced the coffee, so you knew you would be in New York City. Uh, and I was uh, talking with, uh, with Julie, uh, union organizer and author, and we talked about a platform for cooperatives that's called Up and Go, and that's uh, three cooperatives of women, and uh, they are selling their cleaning services through this platform. And Julie was saying, you know, they are their own bosses, you know, can you imagine? And she got really excited about this and basically said, uh, you know, they can develop professionally and as people, and they, <coughs> you know, they, they basically are in charge of their uh, own workplace. And so, and she said she just gets really uh, tired when people talk about, you know, revolution, uh, because... Uh, you know, she just, she just checks out. Uh, because if people don't do something about the, the workers that are alive today, then what's the point? So this, uh, and then Julie sort of sat up and had her back really straight and looked at me and said, you know, you have to commit. And so this is uh, what motivated my talk in a way. So this is what this talk is about, is a committing to a different... Uh, project of an alternative economy move, moving towards a social economy. Uh, so just imagine, for example, just imagine 3,000 individual babysitters in, in Illinois who were organized through the Service Workers Union and then turned into a co-op and are now building a labor platform for themselves and an onboarding platform. Imagine trash pickers in Cairo, Egypt, who are forming a co-op and uh, use a platform to schedule trash pickups uh, in parts of the cities that are not really serviced. Or imagine a young group of women in Ahmedabad, India, who are part of a federation of co-ops and a union bringing personal beauty services to people's houses. So they are becoming part of the gig economy, but as a cooperative. Or imagine a blockchain-powered music streaming service coming out of uh, Berlin, in fact, where it pays musicians two and a half times uh, what Spotify would pay them. Or imagine a cooperative college where classes are run online and off, but every student and professor are actually all part of a cooperative. Imagine a social networking site uh, that doesn't collect data on you, that doesn't manipulate you to buy this or that or to vote for this person or that person. One that is, in fact, owned by a federation of Internet user cooperatives. A cooperatively owned ZDF or ARD, in a way. Imagine that cooperatively organized. So imagine a platform co-op that connects a diverse group of patients who have chronic diseases and uh, gets them access to reach paid research studies that are otherwise completely overrepresented by white women. Or imagine an online labor market for ex-inmates that have otherwise a very hard time uh, getting access to good work. So that applies to 650,000 people in the United States every year. That's how many people come out of prison in the United States every year. 
So these are all examples of platform cooperativism. And what holds all these projects together uh, is people committed to a broad-based ownership and democratic governance. Some are nascent and uh, others are still in the planning phase. So there are some two, over 200 projects in, that, uh, in this ecosystem. So uh, cities in which this, uh, there are <coughs> you know, groups organizing to uh, support this idea uh, include uh, Barcelona, of course. There's a lot of activity here in Berlin. Uh, there's, there are groups in Sydney. There's a conference on this in Tokyo uh, in a few days. There's one in London this summer uh, and uh, in, in many cities all over the world. And so these are some of the people behind all of that. So, these projects can't really be understood in isolation. Uh, they have to be understood as part of a larger ecosystem. And so, it's a model that is really playing out differently for different sectors, right? So, you have some sectors where this works really well and others where it doesn't work so well. So, it works very well for home services, you know, people coming to your house to repair things or uh, cleaning services. It works well in transportation, so there are taxi services, essentially a cooperatively owned Uber. Uh, or there's social care, right? So elder care, people uh, uh, caring for people in their homes. And then, of course, this also stretches into infrastructure questions of a cooperatively owned cloud or cooperatively owned internet altogether data sharing, and some of these projects exist already. So like I said, uh, I'm just talked about pool markets, right, like uh, social care or elder care, where there is much more demand than there is supply, and those are the areas where this is really uh, thriving. So they will be particularly important because in those areas, you don't really need the marketing that you would need to compete with somebody like Uber or Lyft or other companies. Platform co-ops can shake the joint of uh, those industries. They can introduce dignity and fair pay and uh, healthcare and uh, in healthcare and all kinds of home care uh, industries. And that's a huge industry also in Germany, right? So in the US, that's 2.2 million people working in that industry alone. And as you, I'm sure, know, uh, in terms of demand, by 2050, the population of adults over the age of 85 uh, will grow from 6.3 million to 19 million, right? So that age group that needs care uh, will increase significantly all over the world, also in Germany. And it's a profession that is uh, not very well paid, is not very dignified, so this is really an insertion where you can uh, introduce this model and will have uh, likely success. Right? In the US, they make something like $13,000 a year, which is very hard to survive on in the US. Another elephant in the room is uh, basically for people who are interested in building a different economy is that uh, currently in the US you have... Uh, Two, uh, you have 10% of businesses being employee-owned, right? So over the next five to 10 years, two million businesses, additional businesses, will change hands. This is baby boomers retiring, right? So this is like an historic event with, an, with a singular opportunity to basically introduce employee ownership into these two million businesses that will be sold 
over the next five to ten years. And so it depends on the awareness of all of us and of the owners and workers in those uh, businesses to actually understand that there are also alternatives and that you don't have to go with the corporate form that is uh, currently so prevalent, right? So that's the elephant in the room. It's not so clear also uh, that uh, corporate platforms like Uber will inevitably prevail. I mean, they didn't in Berlin. Um, and uh, these corporations don't really add a lot of value and could potentially run, could be run by unionized worker or user-owned co-ops. So I don't know, I'm old enough to remember many of these empires uh, vanishing, right? I don't know if you still remember Yahoo. Anybody had a Yahoo account? Yes, a few people. Lotus, anyone? Friendster, MySpace, right? Uh, AOL lost out to the, inter to the free internet, and Microsoft's future was changed by Linux, right? So I really do believe that a better world is possible, but it's not really clear what will get us there, right? So we have, in the immediate term, I think, like, no capitalism isn't really an answer either. So there are projects like, Universal basic assets, right, or universal basic income, depending where you want to go. Employee ownership, ESOPs, cooperatives, the solidarity movement, and, you know, of course, the peer-to-peer -peer movement and electoral politics. But this isn't so much about solutionism. This is not about saying, like, so you're upholding the solution now that will solve everything, right? This is certainly not what this is. Uh, but there is... I think what's important about this is that so many people, and also so many talks, I'm sure, at this event and many others you went to, I think 80% of what people talk about is really a diagnosis of what's wrong with the current system, right? but there's a very small part where people actually su uh, suggest solutions and alternative pathways, and I think that's very important. So post-capitalism, you know, Paul Mason, or the post-work society, all of these things are, like, very far away. But what will get us there incrementally, step by step, I think that's very important, and that's sort of what I'm trying to focus on. So let's give you, one let's give you a few examples. So I mentioned uh, this conversation I had with Julie about Up and Go, right? And uh, so they are a platform that is basically run by three uh, small worker cooperatives of uh, low-income immigrant women in Queens, and they offer their cleaning services uh, through that platform. And they're really interesting. These are not clones of the corporate equivalents of those sites, right? So you have... Uh, For example, when you, they, they met and talked about the design of this platform and decided that they don't want worker profiles, right? Because they didn't like this idea that uh, you would have <coughs> competing workers uh, being listed like it is in the entire sharing economy, right? Workers being pitted against each other with reputation scores. So they said, basically, we don't want this. So they have basically all you have, you pick the co-op or you don't, right? So, like, you have only the choice of this group, you have three choices, and you don't know who's coming because they say, basically, you should trust all of us because we have pride in our work. Um, a very different uh, example is my data, and I will get to that in a second, but first I wanted to say that for those workers, you know, this can really give a glimpse of a different model of a society of a more ethical consumption already today. So this is not like post-capitalism or the post-work society or universal basic income, but this is next Thursday, right? This is now. 
So, and it also shows that the, the, a project about the advancement of, uh, eco of economic advancement can also be at the same time about social justice, right? So social justice and economic advancement are combined. And today, the capital required to run a business is much lower than in the past. And so this could well be a reason that investor-based startups are not the preferred model for the future. And I think we will see. So this ecosystem that I showed you, most of these companies are very small, right? Uh, but as a model of a more equitable future of work, I think they are very promising. There's also this question of, you know, how you feel at work, right? So Peter Drucker, this uh, management theorist, said uh, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it's true that a strong work culture really matters. And people, and I think probably many of you sitting here, right, especially maybe millennials, can't really see themselves, uh, I don't know, working at Sony or, I don't know, IBM, one of these like very corporate hierarchical institutions because you don't want to check in your soul at the door, right? You don't want to put on a mask when you come to work. So, and I think this is increasingly important and companies like Up and Go show that this can be done, right? Even if they are small. And so, it's more about these, I think, really motivating for the people going into these projects are also these deeper convictions, you know? Also maybe spiritual convictions, right? Basically not wanting to deny your spiritual self when you go to work, right? That's part of it as well. So my data, it has a different approach, right? So this was founded by the uh, former president of the ETH in uh, Zurich. And so he really thought that uh, it's basically bringing cooperative data ownership to the health industry. So they're introducing uh, basically for patients data ownership of their health record, right? So they create beautiful visualizations on people's phones and, uh, and then as a way of uh, incentivizing people to hand over their data and then the patient decides who the data are shared with, right? If they are shared with a doctor or if they are shared with a hospital. And if it is a for-profit hospital, then they can also charge for their data. And the revenue goes to public research. So it's not for the profit of the individual, but it goes to public research. So there is this... Uh, project essentially, right, of a cooperative commons, a cooperative data commons, which of course links back to Eleanor Ostrom, uh, who didn't, the political scientist who didn't really talk about uh, the internet at all, but she talked about forests and waterways and how this can be managed. But projects like my data basically bring this to the internet and think about how to create a commons uh, online, a cooperative commons in this case. Then there's a project in San Francisco that uh, is called Loconomics, and it brings, uh, again, like freelancers, essentially, uh, organizes them in a cooperative, and uh, they can offer their services, like from dog walking to massage therapy, you name it. And interestingly, they worked very, very hard on their bylaws, and so for anyone new in the uh, startup scene here, so there's no exit 
for Logonomics, right? So there's no access strategy. So once you are committed, very different to the extract of traditional business as usual, this is not about ever selling this, but this is really about making this count, right? Making this business thrive. And it's open source, uh, so you can go to uh, GitHub and actually see their current code base uh, is shared there. And uh, that also means that there is a commitment to the commons with many of these projects by basically sharing their code base uh, online. So then there's uh, Stuxy in Canada, which uh, basically uh, advances itself. I'm not sure why. Let's see. Uh, which is a boutique stock photography site that is committed to uh, a thousand photographers, right? So Getty has, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of photographers probably, right? And so everybody is replaceable and has, uh, you know, uh, gets a pennies uh, per photo. Here, the photographers are well paid, and it's a commitment to the future of these individuals as well, right? So if you only work with a thousand people, you really have to make, they have to come through for you, right? They, as a business, they have to come through. They have to deliver a product that works. So they educate people on the back end about how to deliver that uh, product, right? So there's an educational aspect uh, where they teach them skills on the platform, which you will also never find in the uh, traditional sharing economy. So they made almost $11 million last year. Uh, then I know how many of you are, wait, let's see if this advancing works here, not so well. Okay, here they are. Okay, so how many of you are familiar with uh, Smart? One person, two people, wow, three people, wow. Okay, so well, you should all know about SMART. Uh, it's a really an amazing project. It's a mutual risk cooperative, and what they are doing is they have two really key interventions, which I think are just uh, amazing. I can't wait for the day that they come to the United States, uh, where they are basically working only for freelancers, right? So freelancers join SMART. They are usually creatives, artists, um, and... For the moment of the gig, when they are working on a gig, they become employees of Smart, only for the time that they are working for them. So that means for that time, they are protected by all the laws that come with uh, employment, right? Because this is what people bemoan about being freelancers, right? They may love the flexibility, but they don't like to be harassed uh, by their the company they work for, right? And there are no protections against that. So they help with that. And then the second one, the second big thing for freelancers is, of course, anxiety, right? So being anxious about being paid. So some freelancers in New York get paid like a year after they performed the work. How are you supposed to rent, pay the rent with that? So Smart pays the freelancer what they are owed by this other company seven days after the work is done. Right? So basically removing this anxiety as well. And they do a lot of other things, co-working spaces and connecting freelancers with each other. So it's a real contribution, tangible contribution for freelancers, and perhaps, interestingly, a more tangible contribution than unions have managed to offer also. I mentioned uh, Savvy. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar. So people with chronic diseases uh, in the U.S. are 
often invited to be part of research studies, and for some reason, in most cases, this is white women. So white women are basically tested over and over and over again, so you don't have any diversity in this pool of people who are tested. So basically, uh, Jen, the woman who started uh, Savvy, is one of them. Uh, she was a student at Columbia Medical School and uh, decided to basically diversify this pool, create a patient cooperative where she gives people with... Uh, chronic diseases access to paid studies, right? So they get paid for being uh, observed and uh, also diversifying this pool at the same time. So from these examples that I just showed you, you see that, you know, this while the cooperative model really parts company with capitalism, it also, it's also firmly connected to the notion of the market, right? And that it can actually be responsive to human needs. And this is what Hungarian mathematician Karl Polanyi uh, believed and suggested, right? He said, sure, you can have a market that is actually subservient to human needs. Uh, so that democracy and the market are not necessarily antithetical. So the, he demanded that in, in the Great Transformation. He basically said that, you know, the, that social needs instead of, uh, uh, should guide people's behavior instead of you know, competition, survival, profitability, growth, and market share. So, but what would it actually look like if somebody would design for actual human needs, right? I mean, this is actually not happening that often in Silicon Valley. So, for example, check uh, Airbnb. Uh, yeah, Airbnb, right? You see, already indoctrinated. Uh, Fairbnb, right? So, Fairbnb basically tries to give an alternative to Airbnb, and it's very difficult, right? I mean, to have a network uh, that is, uh, you know, with so many cities in the world uh, that to, to match that kind of uh, network effect is very difficult. But they are trying and they are starting, I think early fall they will launch this. Uh, they, it took them a very long time to develop this network of cities to offer this. So basically this is coming out of uh, citizen initiatives, right? So this started uh, in Amsterdam uh, from artists uh, out of a movement for a fair city and they were basically saying, you know, we don't want every grocery store to turn into a Nutella store because that's what the tourists want. We don't want to be flooded by these tourists to a point, right? So to, to be able to stop or cal calibrate this a little bit, right, is basically what they are working on. And the same in Barcelona and in other cities, cities that are basically flooded by tourists to an extent that uh, locals really don't enjoy. So this is sort of where this is, uh, came from and will launch uh, very soon. I don't know, in my previous talks at... Um in my previous talks here, I talked a lot about Amazon Mechanical Turk, and you know, I remember uh, this room and people just sinking in their seats because it's just like so depressing, you know. Uh, so novice workers uh, on that platform make two to three dollars an hour, and uh, many of them are people with disabilities, right? So in the U.S., you have 82.1 percent of people uh, of disabled people are unemployed, 
82.1 percent in 2016. So many of them using sites like that. So now there's a project coming out of Stanford, which is not a platform co-op, but it is at least a more equitable way of crowdsourcing, right? Operating a crowdsourcing uh, site. So it's sort of part of this universe. I had mentioned uh, this blockchain-driven uh, uh, music streaming site, uh, Spotify, and of course many of you will be familiar with Famondo, which is yeah, they really like transparency. Um, so this online marketplace coming here out of, out of Berlin. So this, like, just to sort of give you a quick overview of where the, the various uh, areas in which this is going, uh, there is uh, in Britain this uh, platform for, uh, for a cooperative of journalists that basically offer journalism through this, uh, through this uh, venue. In uh, Denver, there is um, Green Taxi, which offers uh, 30% of the taxi market in that city through a cooperative service, so they are a, a co-op, and basically delivering a service like uh, Uber there. Uh, there's the Banyan project, which basically tries to bring the cooperative model to journalism, especially in small cities where local journalism is dying, right? And uh, basically they're just taken over by Fox News and nobody is covering local issues anymore. So Banyan is trying to, to change that. So, okay, so these are sort of like a few examples. And essentially what they're doing is this, right? So they are bringing this almost 200-year-old model of the Rochdale Equitable Pioneers, right? This is like one of the, was one of the earliest co-ops and the Cooperatives Women, Women's Guild to today. And so I sketched this out in 2014, uh, proposing to, to join the two together, and I called that platform cooperativism. It's incredibly hard to pronounce, but somehow caught on anyway. Uh, so it's an intellectual framework, economic model, and set of practices that's really concerned with getting things done, right? So not assuming too much, right? I mean, what is a platform, right? So like just to sort of take this apart for a second. Uh, so a platform uh, is an online intermediary that allows individuals and groups to interact, the emphasis here is on internet platforms, and which might be websites, but could also take other digital forms. And they can be marketplaces, labor brokerages, or tools that enable individuals or groups to collaborate. And they have economic importance, but they also have political importance. Just think about these babysitters I mentioned earlier in Illinois. Uh, so connecting them through a platform is also a very political act, right? Because they are dispersed, right? They don't live in the same city or village. They are like all over Illinois. Individual women that take children into their house. Connecting them on a platform means that there's also governance and that also gives them voice, right? Political power. So what's a co-op? Uh, this is not any good old social enterprise. This is not tech for good. Uh, this is a cooperative is quite a specific form. It's, uh, you know, the International Cooperative Alliance defines a cooperative as an autonomous association of persons united voluntarily to meet their common economic, social, and cultural needs and aspirations through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. And to make it easier, they also have seven cooperative principles. So we try to somehow bring them to the internet here. Um, 
which means you know, voluntary open membership, autonomy, independence, education, training, information, concern uh, for the community. Cooperation among cooperatives is interesting because that means that in difference to other businesses, they are actually interested in sharing data, creating a data commons, collaborating, right? Different to competitive businesses. So, <clears throat> we can also think of Robert Owen, who began experiments in communal living in America in 1825, uh, starting with a town that he sort of turned into a cooperative called New Harmony in India, in Indiana. In the American South, uh, intentional communities that functioned as cooperatives uh, were formed by African Americans, uh, free and enslaved. So, in fact, African Americans created cooperatives in the American South to buy slaves out of slavery, right? So a deeply important history uh, that sort of shows you the importance or the, the, the power of this model. In the 1800s, Emilia-Romagna in, in Italy, of course, uh, constitutes to this day 30% of the GDP of that country. So, and yet, this is not uh, your parents' co-op, right? So this is not Edeka, right? Uh, and this goes far beyond the groups of 1960s college students uh, sharing a house and cooking and cleaning uh, services together. So here are the advantages, right? So in this text that I wrote in 14, uh, 2014, I had this metaphor of, you know, taking, ripping Uber's algorithmic heart out and putting in cooperative values, right? So in other words, like an Uber owned by the drivers and operated by the drivers. And uh, why does that make any sense? So when I talk to startup people, they would say, like, well, what are the advantages, right? And there are very tangible advantages. So, in fact, after 2008, there was a real renaissance of cooperatives. And one reason was that they saw that they didn't crash, just like all the other businesses, because they were much more resilient, because people stuck together and made it work. And so you have fair pay, so co-ops are usually paid the same. They're not higher paid, but they're usually paid the same as other businesses. There's definitely a higher quality of jobs because you have actually dignity on the job, you own the business. And they are more productive because it turns out, uh, unsurprisingly, that if people actually own part of a business, they have a bigger interest in it. Uh, and there's a more diverse uh, member pool, potential tax advantages, and the money isn't just sucked out of the community with a vacuum cleaner by some Silicon Valley startup and then transferred to Silicon Valley, but the money actually stays in the community. And uh, they have access to member capital, which we saw with Fermondo, which basically raised uh, shares in the cooperative uh, initially and raised almost a million dollars that way, instead of taking sugar money from some investor. Uh, and it allows them to scale, right? It allows uh, this model to scale. Okay, so it's four uh, main commitments that you want, like sort of a north star of the alternative digital economy, uh, and they are broad-based platform ownership. So basically think about a platform that's cooperatively owned by workers alongside the people who use it, right? So there are multi-stakeholder cooperatives. And because you can't, what's at the heart of this is that you can't substantially change what you don't own, right? So with this discussion, 
like many of the talks that you heard here at, at Republica, I'm sure, talked about privacy and Facebook and all these things, but substantially, nobody can change very much at all if they don't own the platform. If you don't own the platform, you can have algorithmic uh, transparency, you can have data ownership, you can determine how you classify the workers who are on it, etc., etc., etc. So there is a whole thing that follows from owning a platform, right? So they can do professional development uh, and so on. So it's a basically it's digital self-defense uh, for the 21st century. So and then second, uh, it's about open source, right? So uh, people in this uh, community are committed to open source. And third, we learned that you can't just uh, sprinkling around ownership isn't enough either. So ownership without governance isn't cooperativism either. So you have to really um, have a voice in the platform when you own it. So without democratic governance, platform ownership alone isn't, isn't able to substantially change social relations, right? So, and this is really one of the biggest problems in, for all cooperatives, online and off, is how to make that actually happen, right? Like, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to democratically govern anything, right? Like, how do you have voice, right? That's so abstract. Right? What does that actually come down to? But uh, people figure this out uh, with the tools and platforms that they are building. And then the fourth point is co-design, right? So not waterfall design as you have it in Silicon Valley uh, with a big ego designer who uh, basically pushes a product out to people, but to actually design it with the workers and with not just the workers, but everyone who is using this product from day one. Right? And because what you have, uh, I don't know, a friend of mine uh, told me the story about this woman who basically sits in a wheelchair and pushes herself by sort of pushing her legs up in the wheelchair like this. I mean, you ha it's very rare that somebody moves like that, but she moves like that. And in all tests with uh, self-driving cars, she was killed because the algorithm didn't recognize her as a moving person, as a pedestrian. So things like that, right? So that's why co-design matters, right? It matters for people with disabilities. It matters for all edge populations. So co-design is one of the other principles. So as you can see, these are not just clones of uh, Uber or Care.com or Deliveroo. These are really quite distinct types of businesses. So, <clears throat> so I think we can do, I said this before, we can do more than fatalistically analyze and um, announce the evils of platform capitalism by confronting the claim, well, that there isn't really any alternative by proposing a path to a humanization of the digital economy. So over the past three years, almost unobserved in the niches and hollows of the digital economy, stacks of these projects uh, came up uh, that really follow a very different financial logic. Right? So the oldest worker cooperatives in the US emerged in the 1950s and 70s, but more than half emerged after 2000 and more than a quarter since 2008. So there was a really big increase after 2008. Most of them were created after 2008. So you see this relationship between this form and people trying to insulate themselves against this harm that can be done to them right, in the economy. Also important, 70% of all co-op employees in the US are female. 
70%, uh, and two-thirds are non-white, uh, and Latinos are a near majority with 45%. So that's sort of how you see how economic development goes together with social justice. Uh, so, but what is strange, nevertheless, is also in this country, um, in, also in Germany, that the, these cooperatives and the cooperative form itself is hidden in plain sight, right? So, and why is that? I mean, in the U.S., I can tell you why, why because uh, after World War II, uh, there was this uh, real fear of being associated with communism uh, in the McCarthy era, and cooperatives just shut up. They just didn't say anything anymore in public because they didn't want to fall in this rubric, right? But then the problem was that they sort of kept silent afterwards um, and didn't project their values outwards very much. But one in three Americans is a co-op member. You know, there are co-ops like Ace Hardware, Ocean Spray, Cabot Cheese, and REI Co-op. Collectively, Americans hold over 350 million co-op memberships. Uh, in Brazil, there are 7.6 members of co-ops in 13 different sectors. Uh, every uh, f uh, f 10, um, uh, four in every 10 Canadians is a member of a co-op, at least one. In, Ke in Quebec, even more. France has 23 million. Germany has uh, 20 million members of co-ops. In India, 239 million members of cooperatives. So in Spain's Basque country, of course, the world's largest worker co-op, uh, Mondragon, has some 74,000 workers. So you see that this is uh, a serious economic power. And of course, not all of these co-ops are the same, right? So they are like snowflakes. They are lots of different forms. And some are more political than others, right? So or some are more radical than others. And so um, my heart uh, beats for, you know, unionized worker co-ops, but uh, there is a large number of co-ops. A very big point, coming back to what I said in the beginning, uh, about this fact that, you know, two million bus businesses will uh, change hands in the next uh, five to ten years in the U.S. alone, uh, is the conversion, right? So how can these businesses be converted? And I think a big part of it is not just to know how, but to actually understand uh, that it really needs, well, talks like this and many, many others to raise public awareness of this model at all so that when it comes to a conversion, people know this at least at an option, right? So I'm talking with MIT right now. They have started this big accelerator problem, <coughs> incubator, accelerator, incubator program, uh, where they help students to start businesses, right, that this model should also be part of the palette that they have available to themselves, that, it's, that they are aware of this, right? Uh, that this is taught in business schools, that it is taught in law schools, right? So, but the conversions are different. So the babysitters that I mentioned originally were uh, organized with the help of a union and then had a, turned into a co-op, uh, a purchasing co-op, in fact, uh, with a platform. And then, of course, existing cooperatives can get a platform. That's very easy, easier step to do. Uh, then a failing startup, there's an example in, uh, you know, or maybe one that's just not performing very well, right, that very soon might uh, fail. Uh, the number twos or threes in the market, maybe even, uh, that uh, will be, you know, can be uh, are basically sold to the workers and then taken over and converted into cooperatives. And then there's the antitrust option, probably like on the horizon to say that, like, why shouldn't uh, Uber or Google or Facebook be split up 
with one of these companies then becoming a cooperative by government mandate. Right. So, why should you listen to all of this? Uh, why should you follow this uh, advice or this proposal? Well, I mean, so I, you can uh, follow up on this uh, in these uh, books that I published on this over the last uh, two, three years. Uh, Uber worked and underpaid, and then this co-edited ours to hack into own that really detailed this proposal. And at the New School, where I'm a, this uh, activist uh, scholar, I founded this platform, Cooperativism Consortium, and I presented this model to the G7 labor ministers and to the Italian parliament and to the British Labour Party, took it as one of their 10 points for the future of the internet. And recently we got a million dollar grant uh, to advance this ecosystem through a platform co-op development kit. So here we are basically trying to address these questions that I discussed earlier, where I said basically, first of all, you know, it needs some kind of analysis to actually understand what the problems are with this uh, extractive sharing economy. And uh, then you need to see some of the alternatives, uh, platform co-ops being one of them. And then if you are really interested in pursuing this and starting one, and we get those emails and phone calls certainly weekly from, I don't know, I got an email from a taxi driver in Cape Town, South Africa, who said he was driving for Uber, that he organized 2,000 Uber drivers and they want to start a platform co-op, you know, or a I mean, many people, dog walkers in Los Angeles. Um, and, and so if they are at this point, then we can say, okay, so here's a toolkit, you can actually start this. And so now I'm working with the IDRC in Toronto. It's a group of uh, programmers who are committed to social justice, and uh, we are together, we are building uh, an open source labor platform that people can use and customize for their own uh, purposes. Uh, we help them with uh, uh, legal issues in the sense that we make it easier to start it. So in January, I started um, together with uh, uh, colleagues there, uh, a legal clinic on platform cooperativism at uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, so where we try to sort of get at how to make this easier for people in the United States. And uh, now we are also looking to create uh, a network of lawyers uh, in all the countries where this is uh, starting so that there are go-to lawyers in all of those countries, similar maybe to the Creative Commons, right, where you have lawyers in each country. So if you are a lawyer and you like what you are hearing, then you should approach me afterwards. Uh, so this is what we are trying to build. Uh, I can show you the same thing, a bit more uh, complicated looking, and I don't know if you see this so well. We call this a virtuous tornado. Uh, and uh, so you see basically down here the principles that I had talked to you before, right? Inclusive design, ownership, democratic governance, open source. And then you see how this sort of spirals up, and part of it is covered by this grant, and uh, other parts are not. So now we are trying to bring this to... So we are working with uh, Seva in Ahmedabad in India, uh, working with uh, these uh, babysitters in Illinois, but we're also trying to work with refugees in Germany. That's actually harder than it sounds uh, to actually find somebody who organized them into a group so that you don't just approach individuals. Uh, and try to work with Filipino women who are brought in through agencies to North America and essentially live in uh, modern-day slavery. I don't know if you read these stories. They are definitely ruling. 
So, like I said, so part of this is really about a mindset, right? Coming back to Peter Drucker just one more time, he said in 1949 already, he said that the industrial corporation determines the individual's view of his society, even among those who didn't work for it. Uh, and I think this is the take, this is true here too, right? So platform co-ops are not only economic vehicles, but also a cultural project, right? A cultural project that has to focus on peop changing people's mind, pulling them away from this idea of the competitive super drone worker, right? Uh, who, uh, the homo economicus that is, um, you know, defined by consumption of products and services. And Robert Owen, the guy I had mentioned earlier, he really got it right. He basically already in 1816 said that, you know, individual happiness can really be increased and extended only in proportion to uh, how actively you work towards the happiness of others. And so... I think Thomas Hobbes, right, for the philosophy geeks among you, I think was like totally wrong uh, when he thought that the natural state uh, of human beings would be a war of all against all. Right? I think that's uh, completely unsubstantiated. It's unsubstantiated that competition is uh, in human nature. Right? You could as well uh, argue that for cooperation and mutual aid as Kropotkin and others did, of course. So in reality, I think we sometimes act as cooperators, and then we also act out of self-interest, right? So I think it is really both, right? It sort of uh, goes between the two. Christian Felber, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this book, uh, Gemeinwohl, right? He talks about like, what a horror it would be to uh, be in this competitive uh, environment for 40 hours a week and how that can only lead to nothing else but depression and anxiety, right? If you work in a, in a, in a context like that. And uh, competition really destroys trust between people while cooperation could be really a light at the heart also of the digital economy, right? So in addition to these motivational factors, not wanting to work in hierarchical companies, like I said before, uh, my argument is that this organizational form of the worker cooperatives also would allow uh, an ethical way of scaling this platform economy. So we worked on changing this narrative with uh, you know, our website, of course, and our uh, conferences that you can see here really quickly. So it's a new school where we have the platform consortium. Uh, this is the consortium. Okay, and the next event uh, in which we are trying to bring this to Asia is in September in Hong Kong, uh, where we basically try to bring Asian cooperatives together to sow the seeds of uh, this idea uh, there. And I think what's special about this, these kind of gatherings that we had organized over the last few years is that they bring people together that usually would never be in the same space, which would be legal scholars, technologists, Uh, as much as policymakers, designers, uh, co-op pioneers, union leaders, and legal scholars, I think I mentioned already. So I think what we did in those events was really stake, taking stock of innovation. So there were, you know, we were really early on committed to blockchain and uh, showing also technologically that an alternative is possible and that it's possible now, right? So this is not something that happens on the far horizon. 
So with many others, uh, most importantly Nathan Schneider, I popularized this movement through events and these books and the journalism and really it extended all over the world. Um, and in the meantime, so this model now continues to spread, but I also wanted to say a word about what it is actually pushing back against. So uh, just briefly, uh, you know, this comes out of a context of work shifting away from direct employment towards contract work, which is not so pronounced in Germany. I know you will just shake your head and say like, well, that's not happening around me, but it's certainly happening uh, in the UK and in Germany and in the US and in many, many other countries where basically in the US we have 57 million uh, freelancers now. Every third American is a freelancer, right? Two thirds of which would rather be employed. A third is fairly happy, right? Um, and you also have, at the same time, I mean, much of this you know, of course, already, right? And, and growth of the gig economy. I mean, I was in these meetings to actually determine how big that gig economy is, and there are no real data, so that's a real problem because nobody really knows how big it is. So uh, one estimate was uh, that it is about between a quarter and a third of the American population that is in some way involved in the gig economy, in some way, as consumers, as workers, as hosts, whatever. 25% uh, of the workforce made some kind of money in the sharing economy, right? Some kind of money in the gig economy. It doesn't mean that they made a living. It just means that they made any money in that economy. And at the same time, we saw, of course, the rise of inequality uh, and uh, service workers being paid the lowest, which, of course, has a lot of implications here. And uh, you really end up thinking about Rousseau, Uh, and uh, his idea of the social contract, which wasn't, of course, a contract per se, right? but it was some kind of societal agreement, right? So you do this, and in return you get health insurance, and you have a somewhat decent life, and this is somewhat broken, right? Uh, this kind of deal is broken, and it really needs a sort of new consensus uh, to push back against that. So then, of course, there is also the uh, increase in since about... 1978, where productivity steadily increased while the wages flattened, stagnated since about 1978. Uh, and adding to this, uh, when we turn to the World Wide Web, Uh, the fact that the World Wide Web is really at an all-time low. I don't know if you feel like that. Can you just see like, how many of you think that the World Wide Web is at an all-time low? Is there any resonance of this idea here? Like two, three, four, five, six, seven, not, not a few of you, not very many. Uh, but I think the argument in favor of that idea is basically just the extreme power asymmetry between users and concentrated platform power, right? So you have these five companies basically owning most of the, most of the platforms where you spend most of your time every day. When you reach over to your phone, when you wake up, I bet you that you, in this room, shared, we wouldn't be on more than five platforms on a given morning, right? So I think that's... Or just think about... Um, 
the, this sort of what I call surface progressivism of Silicon Valley that comes into this as well. I mean, you might know this about uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, who built his super successful businesses on atrocious work conditions. But what about Tim Cook of Apple, right? Uh, maybe good to know that he hosted a private fundraiser in his, in his private home for Paul Ryan, Right? I don't know if you follow the news, but Paul Ryan, you should look it up. Uh, so you can see that this is really surface progressivism of Silicon Valley isn't really much more than an alibi for the consolidation of platform power. All right, so, and this also leads to shifting identities, uh, you know, people, uh, as we saw with this rise of author authoritarian powers and people turning to drugs or turning to tech, right, or turning to, you know, there's this opioid epidemic in the U.S., uh, or turning, there's this return to organized religion in Germany, too. In Germany, South Korea, way more people go to church now than they used to be, which is... Right? So there's a change in identity in, return, in response to all of this. Um, so to, to sum this up, right, I would just say, so there's a bro broken social contract. You know, these companies partially operate illegally. There are studies now that came out just uh, months ago that for the first time actually proved that uh, Lyft and Uber and these companies contribute to the congestion of cities. Um, Edge populations aren't considered in design. I give you an example of that. Uh, there's a shift away from direct employment. And why does that matter? Why does it matter if things are shifted to contract work? It's because people lose their rights, right? They lose the rights that were traditionally associated with employment. Um, and unsustainably low wages. I don't know if you saw this MIT study that just came out, which basically showed that Uber and Lyft drivers, on average, had an hourly wage if you subtract their expenses of $3.75. Um, the aiming for these global monopolies, right? These companies operating with this uh, uh, money that uh, comes from investors, so that when you take one of those taxis, you don't actually pay what it costs, but this is all uh, supported by these investors. Compromised data and privacy and centralized data ownership, right? Okay, so. Essentially, just these are the things that are uh, at, at risk or that need to be addressed, right? So there are questions about how to finance this model, you know, how to get access to marketing, how to govern them, how to influence regulator, just in the way these other companies spend millions on influencing policy, right? This model also needs uh, advocates uh, in, uh, you know, policymaker circles. Um, it needs some more data to actually know uh, what this, the size of the sector is, who are the people, how long do they work. Uh, we need a community bank, right, but a new type that actually supports these businesses, maybe in the tradition of Raiffeisen uh, here in Germany. Uh, we need to think about movement building and really separate economic advancement from, uh, you know, from entrepreneur ambassadors. So these kind of sort of awareness making activities are different than actually pushing uh, businesses forward. And so it needs entrepreneur ambassadors, but it also needs local agents, people who are involved on the ground. So I will end with uh, this image by uh, James Seibold. So I, I, I commissioned this and I asked him to think about, you know, the, tra uh, the, the pyramid 
um, as it is uh, usually shown with different class structures. There are many different visualizations of this. And I asked him to somehow maybe think what this platform co-op model uh, would do to the pyramid. And for him, this was basically lots of little pyramids and people running away with it with their iPhones. Um, and uh, so, but what I want to end on is basically to see how you can fit into this, right? So how you, maybe the... I don't, I mean, we, we didn't talk about uh, your backgrounds, but perhaps some of you are, I don't know, in academia, some of you are designers, uh, some of you have nothing to do with media at all and are just interested and want to hear more. Uh, so all of these different backgrounds. And what we really need is applied thinking and empirical research. And, you know, we need more incubators, people building incubators for these projects. We must support research and culture around this. So this means also celebrations and developing rituals uh, and thinking about ethnography and fieldwork. There's some organizational theory in there as well, right? Analyzing governance issues and practical case studies that can be used in business schools. Like, not a single business school, except there's one, one exemption in the United States, there's not one that teaches the cooperative model, with one exception in all of the United States. Law schools don't talk about it at all, right? So how can you change that? You need to provide material that they can actually teach. So this is about uh, a movement about shared ownership. It needs anchor institutions. So I uh, started this consortium at the New School, but we are now also building an institute for the digital cooperative economy. And of course, there's policy work, and depending on where you want to put your energy, you know, you could do this at the federal, local, or state level. And the answer is, of course, different between Germany and the United States for obvious reasons, but we hope that that will change soon. Um, and so, while I mostly emphasized uh, the labor aspects of all of this, it's, of course, clear that there is a lot of discussion about infrastructure here as well. Uh, I know in Germany there's a lot of discussion about energy cooperatives, right? The Berlin, citizens of Berlin, right? Residents of Berlin tried to buy the electric grid of Berlin and just failed very closely and almost got it. Uh, so how can you take that kind of thinking to the Internet? And uh, given the realities of concentration that I explained earlier, co-op ownership of Internet service providers, municipal broadband, uh, cooperative cloud services, right? and cooperative equivalent to Google Docs. All of that is on already underway. There are people working on this as we speak. So I'm arguing also for a fine balance, avoiding any kind of helicopter morality, right, that sort of looks at, you know, is this really a co-op? You know, like legally, maybe not, but they're operating like one. Or is this really open source fully, right? So I think we should be sort of generous with these things, but there are some things that need to be clear, which is sort of core intellectual commitments, and they are really among the four that I mentioned, two that I would insist on, which is democratic governance and broad-based platform ownership. So you can't change platform capitalism solely by criticizing it, by giving talks at conferences, or by solely hoping that policymakers will pick up your ideas. Uh, instead, you can change it by committing to an economic model that reveals the failure of the existing model and perhaps puts it out of business. So you remember Julie that I talked to in the beginning, and she asked us to commit, right? So I'm not sure what the odds are that this model will make the old one obsolete, you know. But I'm sure that 30 years from now, 
platform co-ops will still be a slice of the digital economy, and how large that slice will be is just really up to all of us. And I'm not sure what the odds are that we will win, but I know what the odds are if we don't try. Thank you.